whose strength of mind and solidity of attainments is principally owing to such early influences and direction. The association of the accomplished female writer with Latin and Greek is repeated and reinforced by the profound influence on aspiring writers in Britain and America of Barrett Browning's novel epic Aurora Lee and George Eliot's heroines Maggie Tulliver in The Mill on the Floss and Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch. These texts, along with Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and Villette, become touchstones for women who seek to express their frustration at the limiting of women's potential uh, through an, an education system which reserved classics for men. There are lots of, of novels and poems in which women write about heroines who are aspiring writers and artists. And for those heroines, classical education becomes a symbol of the intellectual life which they are perhaps um, barred from. And there are quite a few of these novels in which girls are put in an uncomfortably public position to deliver a speech or to undergo a public examination on a classical theme, and they astound the patronising examiners who confidently expect them to fail. So while women born in the first half of the 19th century were not likely to have studied Latin or Greek at school or at university, there are some interesting exceptions. Emily Dickinson, for example, is partly educated at Amherst Academy, which had been a boys' school known for its classical course, and began to admit girls in 1858, then later at Mount Holyoke Female Cemetery, Seminary, sorry, <laughs> an important model for seminaries and a precursor of women's colleges across the United States. But it wasn't until the, the late 1860s, 1870s, 1880s that there were colleges in which women students might study Latin and Greek to degree level. The elite Northeastern women's colleges founded after the Civil War strove, like the women's colleges at Oxford and Cambridge, to prove that their students uh, could excel in the established classical curriculum. Their strategy might seem counterproductive since the status of classics as the primary academic discipline was already under attack. The founders of, of Vassar, which was founded in 1865, and Wellesley, founded in 1875, discovered that most potential students were not prepared for college entrance, so they had to set up preparatory departments. The situation was a bit different at Oxford and Cambridge because of the tutorial system, so they didn't approach the problem in quite the same way. Nevertheless, they still had to prepare women students to take classic exams in a relatively short um, period to prove that they could equal the achievements of their brothers. At university, despite um, their lack of, of uh, philological um, experience, instead of trying to compensate for um, learning prose composition or verse composition, uh, women often turned to newer, uh, more modern disciplines, such as archaeology, anthropology, or comparative religion. Uh, and these are also interests which align with Wharton's uh, interests in the early 20th century. Her understanding of antiquity drew on the scholarship which influenced modernists, um, such as T.S. Eliot, for example, J.G. Fraser's The Golden Bough. And I mention this because it's worth noting that Edith Newbold Jones was born in 1862. So some kind of formal classical education was theoretically possible, as it had not been for Barrett Browning, who died in 1861, or Eliot, who was nearly 50 years old by the time she gave money for the foundation of Girton College, Cambridge, uh, in 1868-1869. Willa Cather, about a decade younger than Wharton, studied Latin at the University of Nebraska. 
But for Edith Jones, or Edith Wharton as I'm just going to refer to her, uh, the wealth and privilege of her family hampered her intellectual ambitions, confining her to an outdated model of feminine behaviour which she condemns in her fiction. Had she come from a more middle-class family, which needed her to earn money by teaching, she might have been more likely to go to college. And that family snobbishness seems to have affected her views on the increasingly powerful movement for women's higher education. Wharton writes disdainfully of women who substitute the acquiring of university degrees for the more complex art of civilised living. The association between higher education and elevating a family's social status was strongly established, and it also applied um, for women. In an 1888 article on Vassar, um, which is described in the article as the first women's college in the world, J.D. Hunting claims that for a father who has made his pile and is anxious to give his children every educational advantage, it is just as important to send his daughters to Vassar as it is that his sons should attend Yale. And I think that's interesting because I don't think you could say quite the same about Britain at the same period. It was different kinds of families who were um, setting up the women's colleges at Oxford and Cambridge. A survey of alumni who had attended Vassar between 1865 and 1890 showed that uh, parents wanting their daughters to attend college was a, a strong motivator for those daughters to go to college. The survey reinforces the importance of a father who believed that a daughter's education was worthwhile and who could afford to pay for it. Articles on women students often emphasise that they live frugally and feel grateful for the opportunity to study rather than feeling entitled <coughs> to university education. So the environment that Warden grew up in is very different from that of those early women students. One unusual element of her childhood is the period that she spent in Rome. Her family lived in Europe for reasons which were common amongst expatriates. A reduced income would be less noticeable in Rome or Florence than in New York or London. Her father also uh, was in bad health, so that was another reason. And there's a passage on your handout um, relating to this in which Wharton writes of playing in the Roman Forum and hunting on the slopes of the Palatine for all the mineral flora of the Palace of the Caesars. In those days, she comments, every traveller of artistic sensibility collected similar fragments and had them transformed into objects such as inkstands or ornamental tables as a marker of gentility. Her interest in the material remains of the ancient world continued and developed, and her friend James Van Allen responded to her desire for a Mediterranean cruise by chartering a yacht for a journey which included four months in the Aegean in 1888 during which Wharton was able to indulge her fascination with archaeology. She claims that she saw all but the most inaccessible Greek temples and explored nearly every one of the then little visited Aegean islands. Like many women intellectuals earlier in the 19th century, she was dependent on the educational resources available in her father's library, supplemented by her reading of modern languages and German literature in particular. Her mother wouldn't allow her to read novels until she was married, so she read widely in history, art history and criticism, drama and poetry, and classical authors such as Homer and Plutarch in translation. 
she found some consolation for the patchiness of her education in the awareness that formal study could impair the ability to appreciate literature. This is a complaint that male writers such as Byron and Trollope confirm from their own experiences of schooling. So she says on the handout, um, being deprived of the irreplaceable grounding of Greek and Latin, I never learned to concentrate except on subjects naturally interesting to me and developed a restless curiosity which prevented my fixing my thoughts for long, even on these. Of benefits I see only one. To most of my contemporaries, the enforced committing of memory of famous poems must have forever robbed some of the loveliest of their bloom, and there's certainly evidence that that was the case. Like other women writers, Wharton found mentors whose guidance helped to compensate for the inadequacies of her education. So women weren't necessarily attempting to catch up with the linguistic training that their male peers received at school and university, but might find different ways to respond to classical texts, by reading translations, perhaps, or by interpreting works of visual art. In fiction, heroines such as Maggie Tulliver or Lucy Snow respond imaginatively um, to Latin or Greek literature on history. In her novel, The Reef, Wharton includes an example of this kind of character, whose lack of previous exposure to classical drama in this case makes her res response spontaneous and insightful in ways that a better educated woman could not emulate. And this is a quotation on your handout. She had no literary or historic associations to which to attach her impressions. Her education had evidently not comprised a course in Greek literature, but she felt what would probably have been unperceived by many a young lady who had taken a first in classics, the ineluctable fatality of the tale, the dread sway in it of the same mysterious luck which pulled the threads of her own small destiny. It was not literature to her, it was fact as actual, as nearby, as what was happening to her in the, at the moment and what the next hour held in store. Seen in this light, the play regained for Darrow its supreme and poignant reality. He pierced to the heart of its significance through all the artificial accretions with which his theories of art and the convention of the stage had clothed it and saw it as he had never seen it, as life. Wharton also satirises the superficial knowledge of culture expected of the society women in her fiction, for whom learning fulfils the function of being ornamental and demonstrating class identity rather than any substantial intellectual interest. In a short story published in 1911, uh, the narrator Riley describes the ladies who pursue culture in bands as though it were dangerous to meet alone a group of society hostesses who meet to discuss art, literature and ethics as indomitable huntresses of erudition. One of the women refers to the ancient Greek painter Apelles, who in representing the sacrifice of Iphigenia, veiled the face of Agamemnon. Her allusion puzzles one of the other ladies, whose whispered question evokes this reply, you should look it up, I always make it a point to look things up. Her tone added, though I might easily have it done for me by the footman. <laughs> the narrator suggests that most of the ladies' knowledge is limited to what they can find in a small range of reference works, including a classical dictionary. 
The club, when fresh from the Encyclopaedia Britannica, the reader's handbook or Smith's classical dictionary, could deal confidently with any subject. Anxious to produce a suitable quotation, the least confident of the attendees depends on her volume of appropriate allusions, a collection of literary quotations compiled to meet all social emergencies. In addition to the reference works mentioned in this story, the myths that Wharton alludes to could be found in texts like Thomas Bullfinch's The Age of Fable. So uh, these were uh, stories which everybody could easily access. Wharton's most notable writing belongs to a period of transition between two eras dominated by classicism, the Victorian period and modernism. Her fiction and the poems in her 1909 uh, volume Artemis to Action and Other Verse are strongly influenced by Victorian Hellenism. Some of Wharton's early experiments in lyric verse were published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1880 after her brother had sent them to Longfellow, who re recommended them to the editor of the periodical. She notes that when she was 15, her brother advised her to follow the example of the great poets like Homer, Milton and Byron, who had written epics, but that she found this advice inhibited herself, her sense of herself as a poet or a novelist. That reluctance notably contrasts with the enthusiasm of Elizabeth Barrett at a similar age and her ambition to become the feminine of Homer. Wharton's poetry features classical speakers um, such as uh, Artemis to Action, Orpheus and Eumenides, and she appears to take a lot of inspiration from Tennyson in this respect. In the Age of Innocence, a failure to feel the beauty of Ulysses and the Lotus Eaters is an indicator of May Welland's underdeveloped aesthetic sensibility. In Artemis to Action, well, Wharton's preoccupation with immortality is expressed with some distinctly Tennysonian echoes. This is a, a quotation from the poem. Oh, thus through use to, to reign again, to drink the cup of peradventure to the lees, for one dear instant disimmortalised in giving immortality. Her poetry is not very good, but <laughs> um, it is very clearly influenced by Tennyson, uh, Browning and Swinburne. I'm not going to go into detail about her poetry, but I want to note the use of the dramatic monologue, um, which was used by women such as Augusta Webster and Amy Levy to protest restrictive gender roles in the 19th century. They assumed the masks of women from Greek literature and history, and in particular, the heroines of Greek tragedy. A form which is recognised as distinctively Victorian, yet clearly connected to classical texts such as the Idols of Theocritus and Ovid's Heroides. The dramatic monologue gives the poet a way to offer homage and critique to significant precursors. Once Tennyson and Browning had established the dramatic monologue as a form which allows for the expression of internal conflict and anxiety, rage or doubt by positioning controversial or antisocial sentiments as the words of a speaker other than the poet, it became a potent form for giving a voice to those whose voices were unheard in literature or history allowing poets to articulate ideas that they could not otherwise express with such force. Poets such as Swinburne employed the monologue form to shock readers and to unsettle their ideas about gender and sexuality. 
Women writers found Greek tragedy and epic particularly fruitful sources for dramatic monologues with female speakers, allowing them to express rage about their frustrated ambitions, the continuance of a sexual double standard and the injustices of a patriarchal society by appropriating characters such as Medea, Clytemnestra and Cassandra. Wharton's interest in Greek tragedy is also something that connects her with Victorian predecessors in the novel, George Eliot and Thomas Hardy. They use the novel form for an exploration of the tragic in a contemporary setting. Although the expansive and digressive Victorian novel and the concentrated intensity of Greek tragedy might appear incompatible, some of the most inventive adaptations of tragedy in the period can be found in fiction. 19th century novelists investigate an individual's responsibility for his or her own tragedy, examining the relationship between free will and determinism. There are distinctly modern elements in the versions of determinism that novelists such as Eliot and Hardy explore. For example, the influence of heredity in the development of character and, uh, um, and the theory of natural selection replace the caprices of the gods and fate. These help to explain why apparently ordinary families prosper, while um, families such as the Tullivers, D'Urbervilles and Forleys are fated to fall. In The Mill on the Floss, Eliot compares Sophocles' intransigent heroes Ajax, Philoctetes and Oedipus with members of the Tulliver family. And although the perils are less clearly invoked, or less directly invoked, Maggie's story recalls that of Antigone. The connection between George Eliot's fiction and Greek tragedy was acknowledged by classical scholars such as Richard Jebb. Hardy's sense of his characters as tragic figures is marked by overt and even heavy-handed allusions to Greek drama. For example, justice was done and the president of the immortals in Aeschylean phrase had ended his sport with Tess. In Jude the Obscure, the hero compares his doomed family with the house of Atreus and later identifies with Antigone. Wharton recalls in her autobiography that Hardy's final controversial and extremely pessimistic novel was considered too shocking to print without making concessions to public taste. She writes, my career began in the days when Thomas Hardy, in order to bring out Jude the Obscure in a leading New York periodical, was condemned to turn the illegitimate children of Jude and Sue into adopted orphans, which, if you've read the book, really destroys the whole point of, of what happens. In Edith Wharton's A House of Mirth from 1905, ancient tragedy is mediated by the influence of the contemporary theatre, by naturalism and by social Darwinism. Critics have stressed the prevalence of dramatic influences in the text, including Shakespeare's comedies, popular melodrama and the well-made play. The existence of a secret and a consequent series of misunderstandings, the dramatic ironies that only the audience can perceive, connect these dramatic modes with the Greek and neoclassical dramas to which Wharton markedly alludes in her fiction. The existence, um, sorry, that Wharton conceived of the House of, of Mirth as a tragic narrative is supported by her 1936 introduction to the text. Great was my astonishment when the story which I had conceived of as a simple and fairly moving domestic tragedy was received with a loud cry of reprobation. 
Similarly, in the autobiographical book A Backward Glance of 1934, Wharton writes of the problem she faced in telling a story about the subject with which she was most familiar, a society of irresponsible pleasure seekers, in a way that would resemble the typical human experience. Wharton's answer is that a frivolous society can acquire dramatic significance only through what its frivolity destroys. Its tragic implication lies in its power of debasing people and ideals. The answer, in short, was my heroine, Lily Bart. The term domestic tragedy suggests that Eliot, uh, sorry, Wharton, like Eliot and Hardy, found the novel an effective form for an exploration of the tragic in a contemporary setting, allowing for a complex translation of the tropes of ancient drama into realist narrative. Though unremarkable in social status or achievements, the protagonists of the tragic novel are somehow set apart from those who acquiesce in the cruel and apparently arbitrary rules enforced by the most powerful members of society and do not emulate those who are able to bend the rules to their own advantage. Eliot's Maggie Tulliver, Hardy's Tess Derbyfield and Wharton's Lily Bart are individuals unfitted for the environment in which they live and crushed by the pressure to conform. In different ways, their suffering exposes the harshness of the modern world for women who do not fit into a conventional marriage plot. In his 1938 essay, Justice to Edith Wharton, Edmund Wilson comments that the novelist had developed her own deadly version of the working of the Aeschylean necessity, a version as automatic and rapid, as decisive and as undimmed by sentiment as the mechanical and financial processes which during her lifetime were transforming New York. In the cosmopolitan yet claustrophobic circles of New York society with which Wharton's fiction is concerned, only the wealthy and their parasites can thrive. Theatricality and disguise are emphasised from the first in the House of Mirth. When Lawrence Selden catches sight of Lily Bart at Grand Central Station, he sees her as wearing an air of irresolution which might, as he surmised, be the mask of a very definite purpose. The image of the mask re recurs throughout the text. Between the mask of irresolution at the beginning of the novel and the delicate impalpable mask of death that obscures her features at the end, Lily adopts a variety of masks with varying degrees of success. Selden is arrested by her unaccustomed solitude and is fascinated by the question of what action she might take. It was characteristic of her that she always roused speculation, that her simplest acts seemed the result of far-reaching intentions. The questionable accuracy of this perception is crucial to the portrayal of the heroine, since Lily is not only the object of speculation, but also a speculator one who is often engaged in gambling and thus vulnerable to the fluctuations of chance or fate. This is one of the echoes of uh, George Eliot's heroine, uh, Gwendolyn Harleth, in Daniel Deronda that run throughout the House of Mirth. Gwendolyn is also seen winning and then <coughs> rapidly losing the money which could have saved her from the pressure to marry. Lily is insufficiently hardened by circumstances to pursue a preconceived plan with the ruthlessness that other characters possess in abundance. So it's evident from the first scene um, that the heroine is an accomplished performer in an exclusive society. 
Yet her fastidiousness, her reluctance to marry from purely mercenary reasons, leave her struggling to play the part of an innocent and marriageable girl while perilously goes to spinsterhood at the age of 29. Writing a decade after the emergence of the new woman, um, social reformers, popular novelists, suffragists, female students and professional women who sought to challenge outdated ideas of gender, sexual purity and marriage. Wharton reminds her readers that for women outside such progressive circles, tradition and the struggle for survival impede any attempt to achieve independence. The novel offers a scathing critique of the inadequate education and frivolous occupations that shape the lives of women in the leisure class. Lily is described as a beautiful artefact who is, like other young women in her social circle, compelled to display herself to advantage in order to appeal to a suitable collector, a wealthy husband. In the society Wharton depicts, there is no alternative career open to her. In the House of Mirth, the initiating event that sets off a series of consequences leading to the downfall of the protagonist seems trivial. Yet Lily's impulsive and incautious acceptance of Selden's invitation to tea in his rooms is the beginning of a cruel and prolonged decline. As Mr. Irwin in Eliot's Adam Bede observes, consequences are unpitying. Our deeds carry their terrible consequences, quite apart from any fluctuations that went before. Lily is aware that she has made a serious error. Why must a girl pay so dearly for her least escape from routine? After this initial encounter, Selden's periodic reappearances in the narrative mark the stages of Lily's downfall, culminating in a final scene in which he finds her dead from a reckless extra dose of the sleeping drug she takes to dull the pain of her restricted and compromised existence. Wharton employs the myth, uh, myth of Perseus and Andromeda to explore the vulnerability of young women faced with a devouring monster society. Selden imagines himself as Perseus, who might save Lily from the need to marry a wealthy but uncongenial man, but he's also reluctant to take on that kind of responsibility. Despite the hints of unconventionality that attract his attention, she is too much a product of the system which produces ornamental women with no practical skills. The narrator comments, he knew that Perseus's task is not done when he has loosed Andromeda's chains, for her, her limbs are numb with bondage and she cannot rise and walk, but clings to him with dragging arms as he beats back to land with his burden. Having begun to play cards for money because her hostesses expect it, Lily de develops a passion for gambling, a crucial element of the recklessness that gradually estranges her from her friends. Ignorant of financial dealings, she makes another serious error in asking a friend's husband for help, incurring a debt that she is able to pay off only shortly before her death, and setting in motion the scandal that gradually ruins her reputation. One of the repeated allusions in the novel is uh, to the Furies, and um, so we have here uh, John Singer Sargent's Orestes Pursued by the Furies. Uh, this is a, a painting which didn't exist at the time when Wharton published the novel. Sargent was commissioned by the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to paint a work for the ceiling of the staircase in the building. 
Um, and I think it's an interesting connection um, because Sargent is better known for his portraits of society women, um, which are often used as the covers for paperback editions of Wharton's novels. So there's a strong connection between those um, artists, but this isn't, uh, obviously, uh, Wharton hadn't seen this when she was writing about the Furies in um, The House of Mirth. So the Furies, again, give us a connection with George Eliot's Daniel Deronda. Gwendolyn uh, Daniel Deronda becomes hysterical when she opens a wedding gift from her husband's former mistress, a diamond necklace which the narrator associates with the motif of the poisoned garment sent by Medea to Jason's new wife. Grandcourt finds his wife pallid, shrieking, as it seemed with terror, the jewels scattered around her on the floor. Was it a fit of madness? In some form or other, the Furies had crossed his threshold. Thomas Bullfinch describes the Furies as three goddesses who, had pun who punished by their secret stings the crimes of those who escaped or defied public justice. The heads of the Furies were wreathed with serpents and their whole appearance was, ter was terrific and appalling. Known euphemistically as the Eumenides, or the kindly ones, the Furies appear as the chorus in the third play of the Oresteia. And Edmund Wilson describes Wharton as being much haunted by the myth of the Eumenides. Even the ill-educated Lily Bart is familiar enough with the myth to imagine an analogy between the malign influences driving her away from the temporary security of her aunt's home and the Furies pursuing Orestes. The motif of pursuit by the Furies recurs throughout the text as the heroine is driven out of society, and this quotation is on your handout. She had once picked up, in a house where she was staying, a translation of the Eumenides, and her imagination had been seized by the high terror of the scene where Orestes in the cave of the Oracle finds his implacable huntresses asleep and snatches an hour's repose. Yes, the Furies might sometimes sleep, but they were always there, they were there, always there, in the dark corners, and now they were awake, and the iron clang of their wings was in her brain. She opened her eyes and saw the streets passing, the familiar alien streets. All she looked on was the same and yet changed. There was a great gulf between today and yesterday. Everything in the past seemed simple, natural, full of daylight, and she was alone in a place of darkness and pollution. So Lily internalises the Furies and sort of carries them around with her for, uh, with, for much of the rest of the text. The offence that Lily has committed against her family is not a violent crime, but rather causing a scandal, a scandal de deriving from her gambling losses. Nevertheless, the idea of propitiating a group of vengeful and terrifying female deities by calling them the kindly ones seems apt given Lily's dependence on her influential friends like Judy Trenner and Bertha Dorset, who turn hostile and torment Lily when they feel their money or status to be threatened. Bullfinch's description of secret stings seems apt here in relation to the ostensibly sweet, yet uh, to its object unmistakably spiteful, behaviour of these society hostesses. These furies are not concerned with public justice, but with private vendettas. Their selfishness and, the, and caprice, combined with their social power, make them resemble vengeful goddesses. 
Wharton recalls her childhood response to the Greek myths recounted by a family friend. The domestic dramas of the Olympians roused all my creative energy. She comments that she connected the Greek gods with the ladies and gentlemen who, who dined with her parents, and she continues to employ similar analogies in her fiction. The association between the fractious family of Olympians and contemporary high society persists in Wharton's novels such as The Custom of the Country. Lily associates the fear of punishment and public disgrace with the Furies, a terror which is exacerbated by her fear of the dark. Her realisation that she has be behaved dishonourably in accepting money without properly understanding where it came from is accompanied with an allusion to the sound of the Furies' wings. But by the time she returns to her aunt's house the following day, those mythological avengers seem less menacing. The winged Furies were now prowling gossips who dropped in on each other for tea. Yet in this domestic tragedy, the spiteful gossip circulated at tea parties helps to, to determine Lily's fate when her aunt angrily decides to bequeath most of her property to another poor relation and to leave Lily with a son that can only just meet her debts. When the Furies reappear in the text, they are more specifically associated with the malevolent and socially powerful character whose compromising secret Lily is too scrupulous to reveal. More and more, with every fresh mischance befalling her, did the pursuing Furies seem to take the shape of Bertha Dorset. And close at hand, safely locked among her papers, lay the means of ending their pursuit. Lily's self-destructive decision to conceal and eventually destroy the evidence of Bertha Dorset's infidelity, her love letters to Selden, is, as Cynthia Griffin-Wolfe indicates, a deliberately theatrical advice. Comedy, tragedy, farce, historical pageant, even burlesque in 1905, were all most likely to share this one element, a plot that turned on the concealment, interception, destruction, or revelation of a letter. And we might also think about um, Thomas Hardy's Test of the Durbervilles, in which the letter which goes under the doormat, uh, again, has a, um, has a terrible effect on um, the heroine. Repudiated by her former friends, Lily falls yet further into a social underworld. Carrie Fisher, a successful parasite who more than once rescues Lily by showing her how to trade her social capital for luxury, is frustrated by her pupil's inability to adapt to the environment of recently acquired wealth. When her expulsion from leisure society takes her into the world of paid employment, heredity and education alike condemn Lily to extinction. The narrator comments, inherited tendencies had combined with early training alike to make her the highly specialised product she was, an organism as helpless out of its narrow range as the sea anemone torn from the rock. Lily is warned that an overdose on, of, of the drug from, on which she relies for the temporary oblivion of sleep could be fatal. But in a desperate attempt to overcome the supernatural lucidity of her brain, she hazards the addition of a few drops. She had long since raised the dose to its highest limit, but tonight she felt she must increase it. She knew she took a slight risk in doing so. She remembered the chemist's warning. If sleep came at all, it might be asleep without waking. But after all, that was but one chance in a hundred. The action of the drug was incalculable, but it kills her. 
Despite her weaknesses and limitations, Lily dies having paid her debts and refused to exploit the secrets of others. In the ruthless world Wharton depicts, her sense of honour is a fatal liability. As in Eliot's and Hardy's novels, the survival of the fittest is undermined by the pathos of what is lost. Those characters who are still there at the end of the text are more pragmatic, better adjusted to the world as it is than the protagonist. But there's something admirable about the, the heroine who cannot adapt to such a constricted and compromised existence. Although Lily's fate is determined by her refusal to submit to the pressures of a society in which her purpose is to be ornamental in order to secure a wealthy husband, Wharton shows that a more resilient character can thrive in a similar environment. Much of Wharton's fiction depicts the process by which newcomers, or more frequently the wives and daughters um, of, of men with uh, new money, pursue the project of assimilation by imitating the customs of their social superiors. In The Custom of the Country from 1913, Undine Sprague often seems mismatched with her surroundings, yet her stubborn vitality prevents her from sharing Lilibart's fate. An outsider who fails to understand the subtleties of the upper-class New York milieu she is desperate to enter, Undine attracts attention for her unsophisticated directness and her abundant energy. The description of the homes of New York's upper classes as Olympian portals conveys the immense social, immeasurable social distance the lively and ambitious Undine uh, had, hopes to overcome. She and her parents inhabit a world in which classical terminology has been appropriated by the market and is likely to be associated with one of the lofty hotels moored like a sonorously named fleet of battleships along the upper reaches of the west side, the Olympian, the Incandescent, or the yet more exclusive apartment houses such as the Parthenon. Ralph Marvel initially sees Undine uh, fresh and graceful, despite her crudity and her limitations, as a contrast to his more conventional female peers, who are sealed up tight in their vacuum of inherited opinion and protected by their parents. Seeking a heroic role for himself, he re reflects that there could be no call to rescue young ladies so secured from the perils of reality. Undine, however, is not safeguarded by her mother or by her social training, and Ralph perceives her as a lovely rock-bound Andromeda, with the devouring monster society careering up to make a, a mouthful of her. So like Selden in The House of Mirth, Ralph imagines himself in the role of Perseus, whirling down on his winged horse to cut her bonds, snatch her up and whirl her back into the blue. Once this rescue is achieved and Ralph marries her, despite the misgivings of his family and hers, it becomes clear that her tenacity and her instinct for self-preservation make her considerably less vulnerable than he had imagined. Posing as an innocent maiden, while already proficient in the casually pragmatic Midwestern approach to divorce as a means of social climbing, Undine is not in danger from the devouring monster society. She might rather be seen as the devourer, with Ralph as her ill-fated prey. A sardonically astute observer in the novel comments that Undine is mon the monstrously perfect result of the segregation of men and women in America's business-dominated culture. And this reversal of the sort of expectations of um, mythical stories is also seen uh, after the divorce in which Ralph 
passively loses legal custody of his son Paul to Undine. She then uses the threat of taking Paul to live with her so that she can get more money from her ex-husband. Ralph's fear of losing Paul is described with an image from a Greek myth to which Wharton alludes in several texts, that of Demeter and Persephone. Ralph, abruptly awakened from his dream of recovered peace, found himself confronted on every side by indifference or hostility. It was as though the June fields in which his boy was playing had suddenly opened to engulf him. The, the child who seems to have been swallowed up by the earth uh, is obviously a reference to Persephone. And that the illusion places Ralph in the position of the grieving mother and Undine as Hades emphasises the absence of maternal feeling. As with the earlier allusion to Perseus, Ralph is not fitted for the role of rescuer. His attempts to save Paul take him into the unfamiliar world of financial speculation. And after the apparent failure of his investment, which foreshadows a more permanent loss of Paul, he enters the underworld himself, passing from a hellish cityscape full of dust and rubbish to the space between the glazed walls of the subway, another languid crowd in the seats about him and the nasal yelp of the stations ringing through the car like some repeated ritual wail. And I think that description is very much influenced by um, some of the um, texts about uh, ritual um, which were being produced by classicists at the time. Ralph returns home and kills himself, realising that his actions will enable Undine not only to take Paul, but to continue her social ascent. So Undine is not an Andromeda. She is monstrous. She is not, um, not a sweet, um, vulnerable girl. In 19th century responses to Greek tragedy by women writers, figures such as Clytemnestra and Medea are reinterpreted in contemporary terms, harnessing the violence and fury of women in tragedy to express the ways in which women's powerlessness in a society which treated them as the property of men and stifled their potential could become destructive. Antigone, while she seems in, more ways, in some ways a more obvious model than these murderous heroines, also represents aspects of women's experience that seem to have been somewhat painful for women writers. Caroline Winterer has shown that Antigone surfaced as an important rhetorical figure in America in the mid-19th century, and that the American Antigone was a hyper-feminine domestic figure motivated by family and religion, a dutiful sister defying the state to attend to her family and religious conscience. However, George Eliot's reworkings of Antigone in Romola and the Mill on the Floss and the responses to those texts by later women writers suggest that the ex expectation that a woman should sacrifice herself for the sake of a highly flawed brother or father was something to be resisted, not romanticised. So Antigone is a problematic figure. When women began to attend college and experience intellectual life with fewer restrictions and the resources of self-development without the conflicting uh, responsibilities of family life, they began to explore collective identities such as the Furies or the Bacchae. And as with the individual heroines, anger and violence were not necessarily an impediment to adopting such identities. M.V. Hughes writes of, of uh, attending the Cambridge Greek play with a group of women students in 1885, after which the women referred to themselves as the Furies. 
But in the House of Mirth, the Furies do not represent solidarity between women. The destructive power of the Furies is a vengeance enacted by a woman, by women against a woman. Powerless to develop beyond the ornamental role um, imposed on them and terrified of losing the husbands whose wealth gives them the only status they can claim, these women prey on the weaker members of their own group. So I've been looking at Wharton mainly in relation, in relation to the Victorian period as a writer influenced by the Victorian reception of the classics. But as I've said, she belongs to an era of great change in terms of classics as a discipline, uh, in terms of the higher education of women. And in all of these areas, the First World War is the catalyst for profound change. Wharton describes her world as having changed fundamentally in 1914. As the world she describes in her fiction became increasingly remote, Wharton's approach to the old New York society she and previous generations of her family had known is influenced by her interest in archaeology and anthropology. In the Age of Innocence of 1920, the conventional femininity of the late 19th century is a relic associated with a character called May Archer, a woman so limited by her girlhood training that her husband and children conspired to protect her from understanding what an anachronism she had become in the 20th century. May's more intellectual cousin, Eleanor Lenska, has long since escaped the suffocating propriety of New York society and immersed herself in culture and ideas in the intellectual environment of Paris. Wharton also lived in Paris for 13 years until 1920, so at the time she was writing The Age of Innocence, she was closely connected with the university, the literary and academic society of Paris. Commenting on her experience of writing The Age of Innocence, Wharton describes herself as an archaeologist who collects the fragments and assembles them. Old New York, Wharton claimed in 1934, is as much a vanished city as Atlantis or the lowest layer of Schliemann's Troy. From a post-war perspective, she claims, the world of her youth has receded into a past uh, from which it can only be dug up in bits by the assiduous relic hunter. And her role is uh, that of the archaeologist who collects the fragments and assembles them with the advantage of having witnessed the live structure. The allusion to Schliemann's Troy recalls a scene in the Age of Innocence when Newland Archer and Ellen Olenska visit the Metropolitan Museum, ending up alone in a melancholy retreat where they look at the glass cabinets mounted in ebonised wood which contained the recovered fragments of Ilium and dubiously contemplate the possibility that it will one day be a great museum. Three decades later, Archer returns home from an official reception for the inauguration of the new galleries of the Metropolitan Museum, having seen the same artefacts scientifically catalogued as antiquities from Cyprus. The memory of his previous visit to the museum prompts Archer to think um, about all the changes that, rendered the, that have rendered the old way of life obsolete in the age of the long-distance telephone call and electric light. At the end of the text, he chooses not to go up to Ellen Olenska's Parisian flat in which uh, all the modern um, intellectual conversation is taking place, choosing to preserve the memory of their former relationship rather than risk a renewal of it. He's not a gambler or a speculator, uh, but one of the survivors 
who uh, adapts as much as he can to change. Um, he, like Wharton, is acutely aware of his whole era becoming a museum piece, like the relics of the ancient world. Not a tragedy anymore, but perhaps an elegy. Thank you. especially the family, family reunion where you have famously the humanities reprocessed in a drawing room environment. Is that an idea that he might have got um, from Walton a generation earlier? He might have done, or he might have got it from George Eliot, or he might have got it just from a kind of general sense that tragedy is being domesticated in the Victorian period. Um, he might have got it even from Browning. So that there is a, a lot of this sort of reworking of tragedy in the sense that it can that it has relevance to contemporary life and that you can restage it with people and uh, with contemporary versions of the relationships, not necessarily conventional uh, contemporary trappings, but but that these um, that these plays have a resonance which continues to be important in the 20th century and. Um, yeah, so I think he could have got it from Morton, but he also could have got it elsewhere. Poets at that time, I think they can be quite snobbish about novels, so he might not have got it from her, I'm not sure. Well, I was going to say, that is a, a really good moment, maybe, to close, but I just particularly noticed that maybe, in my view, I mean, the family union is where the poet Ella gets it completely wrong. And maybe uh, poets should actually be engaging seriously with fiction, the realism of fiction, where these hauntings seem absolutely to work. So thank you very much, uh, Isabel. And please join us um, for tea. And just a quick note before we thank Isabel. Um, for those who are joining us for dinner tonight, it's 7 o'clock at the Al Shami restaurant.